Hello, everybody. Very pleased to see this great attendance. Well, HFG, what does that mean in German? It's the abbreviation for Hochschule für Gestaltung, and uh, HFG Ulm has become sort of the, the abbreviation for modern design in Germany in the post-war period. Um, we started this room in order to, to show you why this project has been established in Ulm, because Ulm is a very small <coughs> city. It had no university tradition up to then. But you see behind me an image of how Ulm looked right after the war. Still in 1948, there were, the town was in ruins in the last winter of the war in 1944, shortly before Christmas. The town was bombed and the area around the cathedral, the city center, was nearly completely destroyed. But also uh, something else happened in 1943. Hans and Sophie Scholl, who fought in the German resistance to Hitler in the group White Rose, uh, were killed or were executed by the Nazi regime. And they are uh, related they, uh, with Inge Scholl. And Inge Scholl, she's one of the co-founders of the Hochschule für Gestaltung. You see her on the left panel, on the left side, Inge Scholl. And in the middle you see Otto Eicher, who they married in 52. He was already friends with Hans and Sophie Scholl during the 30s. And uh, also he was quite resistant to the Hitler regime. He, he resisted, he refused to join the Hitler Youth, the uh, youth organization which you were forced to, to join. I mean, it was almost impossible not to join. And therefore, he could not do his A-levels in order to enter university. And so his family was not so happy about that. But he, he refused to join the Hitler Youth. And even in the last weeks of the war, he deserted from the Western Front. And that would have meant a death penalty, usually, if he was caught. And the third person is coming into the picture only in 48, and you see on the right Max Bill. Max Bill is a Swiss artist and designer, and he studied at the Bauhaus in the 20s. And so this is the key figure um, putting this project onto the idea of re-establishing re the Bauhaus in Ulm, because that's the basic idea in the in the very first years. Um, if we go one step further back, uh, just right after the war in 1946 already, um, Inge Scholl uh, found is, uh, founds a adult education center, which we call in German Volkshochschule, so it's not really like, like something like open university, but close to it. And from this, uh, there was a, around the group was a sort of small circle, and they called themselves Studio Null, that means Studio Zero thinking now we really have the zero hour where we can start new and everything can be established uh, sort of correctly in, in, the, in, a, in a new way. And, uh, and so they were discussing the idea of a larger idea of a university uh, focusing on politics, uh, history, sociology in order to educate the new the generation, the younger generation in Germany uh, to adopt the, to the new system. And this was met with, uh, I mean, the, the Americans liked this idea. And uh, so they tried to negotiate with the Americans about the funding for the whole project. And in 1948, they met Max Bill. And Max Bill had at that time organized an exhibition called Die Gute Form, the Good Form for the Schweizer Werkbund, that is a design uh, organization. And already in the title you see that um, they sort of have a moral approach to design because the good form is not only an aesthetic form which is pleasing to the eye but also a useful form and this is really uh, related to antique philosophy where we can find the idea that the useful is always the good in a moral way. So we have from the very beginning a high moral standard to the Hochschule für Gestaltung and you will find later that they will refuse certain things, uh, what designers usually do nowadays, but they didn't like to. Okay, so we are in around 1950s, they are drawing programs, they are trying to think what, uh, what they want to teach at this particular school, and they uh, uh, have a understanding with the American government or with the High Commission, Commissioner in Germany that uh, they will receive one million marks 
for the building of the school, but the High Commissioner, John J. McCloy, says you will only receive, or we, the Americans will only give you that money if you raise another million marks on the German side. And in 1950, this is really a lot of money. Uh, the new money, the D-Mark, was only introduced in 1948. So uh, Inge Scholl really um, succeeds in collecting all this money, despite some um, setbacks, like there was a sort of um, anti-campaign against her, uh, telling that they were communists, and of course this would have been a very, very uh, bad thing to be in dealing with the American government. So eventually, they, in 1952, they received the money and the building of the school could start in 1953. And you see the building, the school building in that uh, picture and also here in the large one. Uh, to my left, behind me, you see a still on the, on the building side, with no building yet. And it's really far on the city edge and still you need about 20 minutes to go into town in that time much longer. And it's also new to Germany that there's the idea of the campus university because universities in Germany usually are scattered around town, quite similar to the RMIT actually, uh, but they are trying to sort of have a village on top of the hill with teachers and pupils, students uh, living uh, together. And it's really an architectural landmark. It's the first exposed concrete building in Germany. <coughs> Uh, but the people of Ulm didn't like it. They called it the bunker on the Kuhberg, and Kuhberg is the, the site, the, uh, the, the, the name of the hill, actually. So in '53 they started building the school. In '55 they uh, opened the building, and the building was opened, inaugurated by Walter Gropius, and so we again have a relationship to the Bauhaus, and that's also why the, the school is called Hochschule für Gestaltung because the Bauhaus in Dessau, the name was the complete name was Staatliches Bauhaus Dessau Hochschule für Gestaltung, and um, so the idea really was when the project works, when everything is running smoothly, they would call themselves Bauhaus Ulm, but that never happened because already in 1956, uh, Max Bill, who was the founding director. Uh, put down his job and in 1957 he left the school altogether. The reasons for that I will explain uh, in the next room. Um, what you find here in, are some statistics and also uh, a, a sort of an image where the students came from and this is also quite striking. I mean, I'm sorry that there are no Australian students but there were really many, many foreign students, students, which is really a great thing in thinking in 53 that people would go back to former Nazi Germany to study uh, design. And we even have quite a few Jewish remigrants, from, especially from South America, who went to Germany, to Ulm, to study uh, at the Ulm School of Design, because in the beginning there were former Bauhaus teachers teaching in Ulm, and that had a great appeal, of course, for the, for the very first generation. If you have time later on, I recommend you to have at least a, a short look at these interviews. Um, the original title of this exhibition was Ulm Models and Models After Ulm. And I will explain the Ulm model later. And the models after Ulm means what has become out of the ideas which were developed in Ulm. And the interviews uh, are really with the very key figures right now. On the right TV, you see Thomas Maldonado who is one of the key figures in establishing what the old model is about and what I will explain in the next room. And I think it's time that we change into the large gallery in the middle. Um, I just wanted to explain quite briefly uh, what you could study in Ulm. And we have here one board explaining five different departments. And uh, so there were five altogether, four in the very beginning. Uh, and we have the industrial design department, which is the largest one with 249 students altogether. During the whole time between, between 53 and 68, when the school was closed, uh, there were about 650 students altogether. Uh, the visual communication department was another large department. The building department was much smaller. And uh, also interesting, the information department. 
and lastly, in 1962 only, the film department. But actually it was one of the first film departments in Germany on university level. Uh, the information department, because there's really only few material, because there were maybe 15 uh, people doing the diploma, is uh, sort of a leftover of the idea of having a, a, a general university in, in Ulm focusing on politics and history and, and what I was talking earlier about. But it's also interesting that they would uh, think about integrating a department dealing with language within a design school. So that was also a very new approach to, to what could be taught at a design <coughs> school. And information is really a very neutral word, and, but it also means that they would try to, to deal with language in a very objective way, and, not in, and especially not in a, in a manipulative way. So when I was saying that Ulm uh, graduates would not do certain things, it means they would not go into an advertising marketing agency in order to, uh, to think about the most powerful washing powder slogan to sell thousands of whatever uh, to become rich and famous. This would not work with the ethos of the school and there are graduates who said once you have been trained at Ulm you were sort of lost for this kind of work. And so again, you can see how they really established a high moral standard, and and people who are still alive from who studied there, they still really that's their ego and their their self understanding. I would like to move into the opposite corner to tell you something about the first year. The first um, year was um, dedicated to the foundation. Stay here for a while. And uh, I was talking about the Bauhaus that Max Bill had studied at the Bauhaus in Dessau. He was studying in Dessau, um, and um, of course he had very good contacts still to former Bauhaus teachers and students. And the first set of teachers, there were many Bauhaus, as we call them, in Germany. Most of them, of course, uh, remigrants again to Germany, like Walter Peterhans and especially Josef Albers. So in 53, in August 53, in preliminary premises, they started with the foundation course. And this is really the closest relation to the Bauhaus curriculum, uh, because we have a similar idea of a, uh, of a Bauhaus foundation course at, at the Bauhaus, which was called Four Course. And uh, so this is a kind of visual training where they do not yet design certain things. It's all non-applied designs, but we have, uh, they are introduced to color theory, I mean, to drawing in general. And uh, from the Peter Hans uh, lessons, we have these two uh, examples and what, what is important to keep in mind, every student had to do this foundation course and it was the first year and even um, people with a design diploma coming with a Fulbright scholarship from, the Amer from America, they had to do the first year in order to, to, to get to, all the, to know the old methodology uh, yeah, by heart. Sort of. So what we have here uh, um, is the idea of using two-dimensional elements to create a three-dimensional impression. Uh, this one with simply lines, and uh, this one with surfaces. And um, we have really many, many examples of these kind of assignments in our archive because the school started very early on to collect for the, the, the archive of the school. And uh, in the beginning, these were really assignments you could find easily in a similar way at the Bauhaus. And that's also true for these two examples from the Albers course. Uh, Josef Albers was a student at the Bauhaus, but also a teacher. He emigrated to the United States, and there he established the Black Mountain College, which is one of the preeminent uh, art schools in the United States. And Eva Hesse, for example, was studying there. And, and he was really very uh, thinking uh, a lot about what students had to learn in order to become artists, or in this case, designers. So on the left, we have an assignment which is called transparency. And 
The idea is using non-transparent means in order to create transparency. So if you look from afar, you would think this is just a, a piece of transparent paper folded, but actually it's a kind of collage to create this impression. And in this case, uh, the students had to, to choose the right color use in order to show when the paper is just folded once, twice, or thrice even, and one on the on the light surface and the other one on the dark surface, because also that uh, changes the appearance of color. <coughs> and of course you know, most of you know, I guess, uh, know about uh, Josef Alba's big project about the interaction of color, his book and his series Homage to the Square, where he's uh, relating different shapes of squares to uh, different color combinations and also this has to do uh, with what he's doing here. The next one is uh, another color exercise and we have the vertical strips um, which are the same color here and here and there's one strip going around um, these two different colors and again they are changing colors according to if they are crossing the green or the bluish uh, a line over here. This one is even more complicated because there are uh, sort of breaks between these vertical strips. We see the ground base, and so again we have another color. Um, these are, as I told you, early examples of the of the Grundkurs, and when the Bauhausler were still teaching. Also, Johannes Itten was invited to teach one of the foundation courses, but when Albers heard about that he said, if he comes back again, if Johannes Itten comes back again, I will not come back because they, I mean, they, already in 23, Johannes Itten had to leave the Bauhaus because there was a fight between them. And so uh, Josef Albers sort of was, um, yeah, winning the fight. As I told you before, in 56, the founding director, Max Bill, uh, um, was, was stepping back from his uh, directorship due to internal. Uh, well, fights about the correct the direction of the school. And this has mainly also to do with the idea, can we re-establish the Bauhaus in Ulm? And the younger uh, teachers, especially Otto Eicher, I told you about him, and Maldonado, they said the Bauhaus is long gone and it's, it was closed in 1933. Many things have changed and we really have now to approach uh, the idea what does a designer have to learn within in, in the industrial uh, society for and especially if he's working for industrial mass production production and because in the Bauhaus time we, we, there is a first and slight approach to mass production but um, if you look at the products which were designed they are really more or less arts and crafts and, uh, or at least no not really uh, uh, ideally designed for mass production. And so in 57, Max Bill leaves the school altogether, taking 20 students actually with him who could do their diploma in Zurich. And then Maldonado designs and revises the foundation course, and that's why we sort of have this gap here. And suddenly you see that, and you really see the difference when you are comparing the, uh, these images. Uh, because now the assignments become much more scientific and they are already reflecting what we, what was called then the Ulm model and Otto Eicher defined the Ulm model as a model of design based on science and technology and you see uh, a very scientific approach even to these foundation course assignments and I want, I try to explain some of them and suddenly also the titles are much more complicated. So this one is in English, Disturbance to an Isometric Object According to Principles of Equilibrium. So isometric object, that's the easiest to explain. So every square, it's all the same, the same shape, so they are isometric. And uh, in this case, the, students, the student establishes an order, so we have uh, these row of squares and they, with the proper squares here, we have sort of an internal order and the disturbance of this is done by the extra colors he is introducing at various points but according to the balance or equilibrium of the <coughs> color. And here you can see that it's much more 
um, I mean, you can't really use intuition or your guts in order to, to resolve this uh, assignment. With what we have seen so far or over here, intuition might help, and it's not so important how precise or not precise the assignments are done. And even more so, we find, uh, we can see this over here, the assignment is now um, imprecision through precise means. So it's easier up here, it's more or less the same on both uh, sheets. So you have, you see that the student is sort of inventing a particular shape and he's drawing it with a certain width. And so at some points the width of the line is increasing, creating imprecision but through precise mean, means, and that's the same uh, down here. And apparently students found it sometimes hard to cope with assignments like this. The carnival season was very big at the Ulm School of Design and one had the motto ungenau durch blau and now it's difficult to translate blau in German means uh, that you are drunk so they are saying it's not precise by being drunk so this was the motto of one of the carnival parties in order to sort of uh, cope with these kind of assignments the next one is even more uh, challenging it's a piano surface Giuseppe Piano was a uh, an Italian mathematician who uh, sort of in theory established the piano surface which is a one-dimensional curve on a two-dimensional surface and that could for example look like these designs we have here and basically the key element, the basic element of this design you see uh, on, on, on this part and then the students uh, makes, a sim makes a symmetric mirror, sort of mirrors it to the, uh, to the right, then he mirrors it to the lower level, and so he can mirror the whole thing uh, to this side, to this side, and to the next side, and this is, could be done endlessly. And uh, here they are co combining it with the assignment of a shock as piano surface, it's called, so the shock is sort of a visual thing uh, relating to the color and you see that they are trying to see how these, uh, the, the particular shape is relating to the, to the color on the ground. And this again we can relate to Alba's ideas about the homage to the square we were, where we always can discuss which is the figure and which is the ground. That's a basic uh, problem within the modern arts and, and that's also an interesting problem for, for designers. But Please keep in mind, this is not supposed to be considered as art, and it's, it's a non-applied assignment. That's very important. So we have uh, non-applied two-dimensional assignments. We will see in a minute uh, three-dimensional assignments from the foundation course. But since you are sitting so comfortably, let me explain some of the uh, works to the right. They are now student works from the visual department. So after the first year, the students could decide uh, which department they wanted to study. Sometimes they also were recommended rather to go into production design to choose visual communication. And even during the first year, every quarter, they could be told, well, you rather go home, we can't really use you here, or maybe you, you, you go to a different school. And some of them might have found out that they would rather be artists than designers. I mean, this is what, what everybody experiences when he starts to study. So, um, what you will find on, on the uh, inscriptions is usually that we give the name of the lecturer and the name of the student. Um, so, these two um, designs here were done within the course uh, given by Kohei Sugiura, who was Oops, sorry. was uh, teaching in for one year. He's an eminent graphic designer in Japan. He's still alive and working. And uh, Otto Eicher met him during a trip to Japan. And what is typical for Ulm that you have um, one subject or one theme and that you should uh, establish the theme in different uh, methods and different solutions. So actually there are five solutions to the subject, the subject is Ulmer Bach Konzerte, so it's a series of posters for, for concerts. And so on the right you see the typographical 
graphical solution, and on the left you see a combination of typography and some already uh, sophisticated photography, and uh, there is other solutions. Um, you even have a more abstract image, and the same is true. Uh, it's the same principle from uh, the above level. In Kohei's view, he was also discussing with the students what you should do in order to design that you first sort of collect material and then you, you, you select what you can use and then you only start working on the design so that you don't start uh, designing from the very beginning but, but that you have a kind of system, you have a kind of method and this is what Ulm is about, that you try to be very methodologically and systematic in your work. Uh, the next one uh, two examples for corporate identities. The one is uh, for the zoo in Frankfurt, the bottom is for the zoo in Munich. So these are just uh, sort of fantasy assignments. I mean, they were not really contract work for the school. Uh, we will talk about that uh, later. And the above, the idea was uh, to have all elements split into two halves and to create a color scheme. Um, and uh, to use this throughout the whole corporate identity. If, it, if it's a car of the zoo, if it's the, the uh, posters or what you have, what is included in the, um, in the corporate identity of that particular image. The next one, um, these are two examples from, from the course by Thomas Gonda. And Thomas Gonda is an interesting designer. He comes from, originates from Hungary. He emigrated to South America and came back to Europe, Europe teaching in Ulm for about 10 years and then went back to the United States where he was working quite successfully. And um, these are very good examples um, before, uh, before the time where we could animate images on the computer screen because these are uh, both um, trying to give uh, an animated image. So this one is movement on the in the space. Uh, one above and this one the big, on the lower image is uh, movement on the surface. So if we start on the in the top left corner, you see a small sign, <coughs> and he's sort of zooming in into the sign and even disturbing it or distracting it. And so eventually he arrives at this particular shape and eventually has invented a new sign. So he's changing from the top left corner to the lower right corner. And um, I mean, you can easily imagine this being a film, sort of. And that's true also for, for the lower end. So, um, okay, so these are just some examples of the visual communication department. Um, and what sort of how they use this for assignment for contract work I will show you when we talk about the Lufthansa uh, CI. I think it's time that we look at the vitrines over here. I will be on this side and um, I will try to explain some of the work here. Again, it's not hard work uh, from the first study here. And of course we had two dimensional works, um, but also it's important to work with three-dimensionality, especially if you become a product designer. And when I first started to work on design history, especially in Ulm, I was sort of asking myself, well, what did they do with these bricks? Because I didn't really understand what, what was the problem. And uh, But now I sort of quite love them because they are really very telling. And um, so, what is the problem here? If you look at all these, well, I call them bricks now for, for a moment, um, they have the same size, more or less, but they are all different. But how are they different? So if you look closely, um, between this one and this one, you already can see that the edges are different. And so all of these bricks are radius studies. And if you question the sense of these, just take out your phones and you will see how many radius, radiuses you will find of any object you will hold in the hand, even the stool, it has to have a radius which makes it nice for your hand to keep it and of course 
uh, nice to use it. And uh, so that was a very important part of the of the uh, education in Ulm, and especially Hans Gügelow. We will hear about him later. Was very keen that uh, students were working on these radiuses. Um, they are actually made from plaster, and then in this case they have been painted. But we also have just pure plaster ones. And in the lower part, you see variations on openings. And um, you can easily imagine this could be used by uh, with speakers or something like that. And that's why we have put into the vitrine these uh, walkie-talkies, which are, of course, very funny to look at nowadays, but they are from 1962. And this was the smallest they could get in 62, because the assignment was to use a certain kind of battery. Um, I think you call it monocell or monoblock in English. It's about the size of my palm, so it's about the width of uh, the, the object. And the antenna had to be received by, by the whole walkie-talkie, and it was a walkie-talkie used for, uh, for industrial companies where you could not use a phone working in the factory or something like that. And that's also why the button to activate this is rather thick and big because one thought people might use a glove in winter times and sort of needed a big uh, button to press on rather than a small one. And uh, the idea was also to uh, give the user immediately an idea where he had to speak and where he had to listen. So what we call now intuitive design, and that's why we have two, these designs with, a, uh, with this sort of um, bend. And uh, this also is already uh, really a practical use of semiotics. I will talk about that later, the theory of science, which is also a subject in the curriculum. And if you look on the side, you will see different kinds of openings where you can sort of relate to to the walkie-talkies, because here we have just the openings arranged in a square way, and here they in a circular way. Uh, the next <coughs> vitrine shows you um, also from uh, elements from the foundation course in the building department. They now date from the 60, 60s, and this is also typical for Ulm, and also, uh, well, one of the uh, reasons for constant crisis uh, that they were constantly discussing what shall we teach, what shall we put on the curriculum, who is supposed to teach and in 1961 the uh, foundation course um, was, uh, the, the common foundation course was uh, abolished and so each department uh, formulated its own foundation course because up to then the foundation course was the same for everybody and then they changed it because they eventually said, well, if we have builders, if we have architects, they have to learn much more mathematics in the first year than maybe the visual communication departments. And um, so we have a folding study where you had to create a stable um, structure simply by folding paper. And here we have visual filters. In, these case, in that case, they are made from plastic and um, more stable structures where we sort of have a more sophisticated idea of folding and creating a stable structure. You see here the elements which make this container, so here you can already see that they're focusing on the idea of industrialized building. That's a big subject in Germany. In, in, in those years, in the 60s, we have really a shortage of apartments because of the growth of the, uh, the people in general. The last one is now more or less experimental geometry. Here we have um, one important eminent figure. Um, his name is Walter Zeischek. And that's also an interesting figure because Walter Zeischek uh, was trained as a sculptor. And um, what Ulm is really about is that they established the profile of the designer because up to then you could not go to a school to become an industrial designer. Usually they were architects or sculptors or just people gifted as, as designers, but there was no, no particular school. And so he is really a sort of Twitter, you could call it, uh, 
somebody coming from the arts but working in design eventually. And Walter Zajczyk was very interested in geometric forms, especially geometric forms which you could find in nature. So, for example, he really loved the sinus curve. And here you see an abstract um, idea, or a depiction of the sinus curves. And here you see an applied version because he really was playing around with, with shapes he liked and, and eventually he made an ashtray from it because he found a producer uh, for, for plastics and they had a good relationship and he paid a lot of money for Zajczyk sort of to play around. We have many, many models which never were produced and so eventually they made this ashtray and even a stackable ashtray actually. And so uh, this is also something we, we find quite often in Ulm, stackability and how shapes sort of close um, together. And something which is always also related to a product we will see later on is this um, node. Just the idea of how I have sort of from certain directions, from several direction, directions I have um, elements coming to join at the center and they form a node. And of course this node has to be designed also in a way and I sort of could could sort of do this and this and just sort of bind them together, but they are trying to design a unified whole, uh, uh, building or designing a new form altogether. And uh, I will show you uh, an example how they use it in the, in the product form, so that makes it easier to understand. Um, I have already talked about semiotics, so I want, before we go uh, over to the other side, I want to show you this tower. And this tower is um, an image we invented for the library, uh, for, yes, for the library of this um, And that was very important for the students. If you talk to former students, they really have a fond memory of this library. And um, I told, told you that Ulm was a really small city and there was just a city library, but of course not a library specialized in design. And most of the library is still existent. We hold it at our archive. And um, it's really also an important source for us because we really can say what people have been reading and what professors have been recommending in, uh, in the in the lessons, and so we have uh, here. You can find information about different um, different subjects. So, for example, semiotics. And the Ulm School of Design is really the first design school putting semiotics on the curriculum. The theory of science. Charles and Morris is the preeminent uh, semiotician from the States. So we have various books: science, language, and behavior. Max Benze, who was teaching at the school and who was later a professor in Stuttgart, he is uh, interested or he's working in that field. Geometry, we have seen how many geometric uh, assignments is, a, is also has to do with, with theory, of course, and we have uh, many, many books about that. But you will also find something about Gestalt theory. And that's what I was trying to explain just a moment ago with this node. Gestalt theory means uh, basically that the sum is more than the uh, uh, whole is more than the sum of its parts, and so um, Gestalt theory is part of psychology, and so they were also trying to apply this to design. Um, they were also given literature lectures or in history of literatures. That's why we have a selection of books here, and maybe I want to show you. Ritter, he was um, the head of the foundation course in the 60s for some time, and he's really responsible with other professors that the whole school became much more oriented towards theory, and he was convinced that you should sort of plan every step while you were designing. And, um, Eventually, students and even teachers complained that it was becoming too much related to theory, the whole design process, and so they uh, moved a step back and uh, went sort of went back to the drawing board. But he was introducing subject like, subjects like operational analysis, 
in order to plan activity and, um, and of course a lot of mathematics and as I told you before uh, students complained. Then we have one example or one shelf with sociology books and one is very telling, Thorstein Nieblen, that's an uh, American philosopher with a Norwegian background and he wrote a book in German, it's called Theorie der Feinen Leute, in English it's Theory of the Leisure Class and he coined the term conspicuous consumption and was already discussing that people would buy certain things, certain objects only to, to show their status. And of course, you can imagine what this might have been in the 19th century, but we have the same problem still today, if it's a phone or a handbag or a car, uh, you name it. And so this again is quite telling about the moral standards in Ulm because they sort of didn't like this idea of conspicuous consumption and of uh, buying things only to, to show status or sort of to show off. Um, and the lower part is just giving you an idea of what design magazines we were held in Ulm. Also, this is an important source, of course, nowadays for, for our work. But now we move over to uh, some product designs we have uh, inside, and I will start with the very first one from 55. Um, the Ulm Stool, the legendary Ulm Stool, a design by Max Spiegel and also Hans Fügerow and Paul Hildinger. And Paul Hildinger, he was the master of the wood workshop. And sim that's a similarity again to the Bauhaus. At the Bauhaus, we had different workshops and, uh, for different materials, and also at the Ulm School, there was a plaster workshop, a wood workshop, a metal workshop, a photography, and uh, later a plastics workshop. And so I told you about the money they raised by the Americans and by the Germans, but money was always scarce. And in the first year, they apparently didn't really have money to furnish the school. So they um, invented this wood stool and they invented a really mobile piece of furniture, even with multi use. And basically, it's three screws board, boards which are joined at the edges in this particular way. And I believe you told me the English expression. Dovetails. Dovetails, okay. So, and this was rather cheap in, in the 1950s. Now it's really expensive because it takes time. And that's why it's marketed rather expensively. And on the lower, on the two uh, sides, you see that there's an addition in beech wood, which is much more stable and not uh, doesn't suck uh, humidity so easily, so it can also stand outside. And in the middle, this is simply a broomstick. You could buy it, shorten it according to the length you need it, and put it together. But this, if you turn it down, could also be the handle in order to carry things around the school, the school around the school, because in the beginning, it really could have been that they moved it from the mensa to the coursework, to the lecture room, and back. And here you find some images of how Max Bill used it as a lecture, or how they used it in the students' quarter uh, in order to furnish the apartment. Behind me is one of the most iconic products of the school, and also one of the products um, which is an example for another speciality of the school. In order to finance the school, which was always private, this is important to keep in mind, they established development groups, they were called, and they are sort of semi-official design offices where the, um, uh, the professors could work on uh, contract work for, from the industry. Students could work there in the, in, during the breaks and the school could make money by uh, getting these contract works. And this was is the, the famous Snow White's coffin, the, co the compact appliance, which was done for Braun, and Braun, you might have heard of Dieter Rams, was for many years one of the leading uh, uh, firms for electrical appliances in Germany, but electrical appliances with a design, uh, well, with a high image of design or high status of design. So what's new about or what's so special about this Snow White's coffin? 
up to then, um, appliances like this looked more, much more like furniture, and they sort of were trying to hide the technical aspect. People didn't like to have sort of technical appliances in the living room, and so uh, you might find them hidden into furniture looking like a Rococo uh, chest or something like that. But Hans Gugelow, who is really the key figure in designing uh, this, he sort of did everything in, in differently. He's using light wood opposed to dark wood, which was typical. And instead of uh, building the whole case in wood, he's using metal. And this is also a new approach because the technicians up to then were rather skeptic about uh, the result, uh, the acoustics of that. And of course, the Perspex lid, which is absolutely new. And the Perspex was also new within the design field in general. But it is also interesting that they put many things, uh, existing things together. For example, the, the element, the unit with the LP player was actually designed by Wilhelm Wagenfeld for about round for another project. And so they used that and uh, within there, there's also an SK5 and SK6 and, and then they changed that design too. Because in the end, everything was white. And because if you look at it closer, you will see that the unit of the LP player is gray and white. And what was also done in the school is the arrangement of the different buttons uh, in the product they designed before. The buttons were still in the front row. You, you will find an image over here. Now they put it on top. So from the front it looks much more close and much more clean. And also the scale was designed at the Ulm School of Design. Usually you had black ground and white inscription and Otto Eichels just changing it with a white ground and a black inscription. And also here you find the idea of intuitive design. A button which you have to turn is of course round and the button you have to press is rectangular, slightly dented, so that you know I have to do this, not sort of uh, this. And uh, this is typical for the brown um, products in general. And um, although this was not so successful economically, it really gave them the image of a design-oriented um, company. The more successful um, products were the Brown Six Tank in '62. That's a razor, electric razor, and the cameras uh, they also produce. But you will find the Snow White's coffin in every design history book about uh, the 20th century design. And um, of course, if we look at the story of Brown and Dieter Rams, and you will eventually find Jonathan Ives, the chief designer of, head designer of Apple, being very oriented on brown design, but the basic, really the basic DNA for me is coming from the Ulm School of Design. And again, you see, I was talking about the radiuses. Look at the radiuses on this box, for example, very tight radiuses, that's typical also for the Ulm School Design. And this was so successful that actually for some time, even in English, there was the term to Ulm up. Uh, so in order, if you wanted to, uh, a product to look as if it was designed in one, you would sort of turn certain uh, elements, certain keys, and, and then you had wound it up. So it would be interesting to see who tried to do that. Behind me, another iconic product. Um, and this now is for me one of the best examples to uh, talk about the Ulm model. I will give you the definition again. What I just said, the Ulm model is a model of design based on science and technology, and the designer is no longer a superior artist, that's his own words, but he is, um, in, well, sort of he is taken into the process of decision-making in, in product design. That means you don't work as a designer in your sort of ivory tower and you have the idea the sparkle of genius strikes you in the middle of the night when you are drunk or whatever but you really have to work systematically in order to, to have results and that's what Hans Nick Röhricht did this is his diploma work he did in 1958-59 and we have all his um, plaster models he did for this design. It's a rather large diploma work. He designed more than 30 pieces of um, tableware and it's really one of the first uh, tableware sets where you can stack 
all the pieces. The idea of stackable tableware we already find in Resurtis, again, we have Bidenfeld designed glass containers, but um, in those years, in the late 50s, several designers are working on this idea. And for example, you even can stack the pots because over here you see the lid, and he's just not putting a handle on the lid, so you can put the lid on the pot, the next pot on it, the lid, pot, and so you even can st stack the pots. And the basic idea, you can uh, see that best in this uh, cup or mug over here, is uh, the basic idea is to have two cylinders, the lower one with a smaller diameter, the upper one with a larger diameter, and this uh, results in a very good stackability, that the elements stack quite deeply into each other, and that means that the stacks are really stable. And you see we have now here between seven cups stacked on top, and you could even, even go higher. And this is important, of course, uh, for the locations where you use this kind of uh, tableware, uh, students' halls, hospitals, restaurants because you have not so much space and you want to have a lot of tableware available. And even uh, Nick Röhricht had to cope with what uh, the, the company, the production um, uh, people needed because you can't really produce uh, a double cylinder within ceramics. And if you look at especially the mark over here, you will find that the lower part is slightly sloped. And this is a slope you need in order to put the final product out of the form. And Mr. Wagner, do you know the English expression? In German, it's Ausformschräge. And I can't find the English expression. Um, no, I have to figure that out. It's the draft. Yeah, it's the draft. But uh, I mean, is it, is it clear for everybody what I'm talking about? Because I, that's a really important um, detail. But that you simply have to have a certain slope in order to put something out of the shape. And that's, uh, that's really a basic law if you do cast iron or plastics or ceramics. I mean, you can, you can do it, but it takes much more time. And of course, that makes the product very expensive. And with a cup like that, this goes into the oven into the hundreds. And you have to sort of move, uh, produce them very quickly in order to have a good price in the, uh, in the end. And also, and this is again related to the library, you would know, you would have to know what will happen with, with your tableware and the dishwasher. And actually we find a very strange leaflet in the library with the title sort of um, uh, the way um, tableware dries in industrial dishwashers. And this sounds crazy at the first moment, but of course, you know from experience, when you open your dishwasher, usually there's something you have to give an extra dry, and if you do this, have to do this in a restaurant, the manager will not buy this kind of china again, it takes too much time. And uh, Hans-Nick Röhrig apparently succeeded because this particular design was produced for more than 40 years without interruption, and he sold several, I mean, several millions probably pieces of this, I guess, and so this is a really successful and sustainable uh, design and sustainability is now a common word for almost everybody, and they already discussed the idea of sustainability in the in the late 50s, early 60s. So again, you see how avant-garde and how far out they were already in in those years. Okay, we do. I still have time to explain the car and the lamp, or should I rather come to a close? Okay. Yeah. You have a new one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, maybe I should also say something about Lufthansa. So let's talk about Lufthansa first. So I was talking about it earlier. I mentioned it earlier. And you see here one of the big, big uh, contract works for uh, by the development group of Otto Eicher. He had his own development group, and in 1962 they were given the contract to redesign. Uh, the CI for Lufthansa. And of course there were elements already existent, like the colors, blue and yellow, and the crane. But they changed the crane. The crane you see him in the original version up here, and then you put him into a circle. 
and he also changed the uh, balance of um, the colors and he, he intended to do this to have more yellow but eventually the Lufthansa didn't like this so they put uh, they did it, uh, put in more blue again because they sort of were too traditional but you see on this uh, board what was involved with this uh, project it was not just the graphic design for the flight uh, tables but also uh, the, the table were used on board and that's now plastic but also designed by Hans Nick Röhricht and all the, the marketing elements even the, the, the indoor or the sort of um, plane design and many other things and what is interesting uh, design wise over here you can see how they try to uh, argue about the the typography they are using, because here you can see that they are using a capital and the rest small letters, here only capitals, and there you can see, and UN School of Design actually was opposed to using only caps, uh, that it's more easily to read, even if you can only see half. Here you can't really see what, what it says, but here you can sort of more or less make out that it says Lufthansa, so these are some um, uh, that's a very important uh, piece of the whole and here we have reports and many more things and all this we hold in our archives. So this was a big contract that uh, two former students who were working for Lufthansa were then um, uh, sort of responsible at Lufthansa that this would be put into work. Now for the car, and the car is really the exception and I was talking to before about the exception something interesting because they did not do automotive design and this is really strange because in the 1950s, 60s the automobile industry in Germany was booming because everybody wanted to have a car but uh, the car industry sort of was for them the enterprise because it was the image or the idea of capitalism and of course the school was more oriented towards the left and ironically 40 students eventually got very good jobs in the automotive industry. But there were two students who just graduated and they had secretly uh, designed this car together with an automobile critic and they even won an award with the, at the Frankfurt Car Fair in 1965. And so the school had to sort of say, oh, you've done a good job. And now it has become one of the more popular images, actually. And of course, you choose it also to promote the, the exhibition here in Melbourne. And so what's so special about it? Basically, it's the idea of the family van, but 20 years before it was first produced. This is done in 65 uh, by, Fritz, uh, by Michael Conrad and Pio Mansu. You find the idea of a higher level uh, of the seats you find in the back folding seats so that you could arrange your uh, luggage area and all this and it's a rather short car just 3.5 uh, meters which makes it also accessible to smaller parking spaces and so on and it's not a glitzy flashy car and because I mean that's what they didn't want to have designed in the first place also they, this, they think about how um, and now I have to look for the English word how they have to what is it, the fiberglass they use, so it's, yeah, yeah, um, sorry, impact-resistant non-corroding fiberglass, I was looking for this, sorry. So impact-resistant non-corroding fiberglass, how that could be used in the chassis, um, so the, the, front and, the front and the rear fender and uh, other parts of the chassis are made from that, and which makes the car lighter, of course, and so there are many, many new ideas, uh, which were only interesting to the industry in 1984, actually 1984, Renault introduced the Renault Espace, which is the first family van, or that was people mover, was the word, Evelyn, you said, people mover is the word you're using, uh, people mover uh, introduced to the public, and then it was welcomed by, by the public. But again, this is a wonderful piece, uh, and a wonderful design, where you can see how find the future they were thinking. And well, in 1968 the school was closed. I mean, I have to talk shortly about this, but quickly, 
um, the school was always a, a scene of crisis, one could say, and in the end uh, they were very short of funds. The foundation which was supporting the school was in debt, uh, highly in debt, and they couldn't finance uh, the school, and so they eventually the, even the students decided that the school should rather be closed than uh, joined uh, or amalgamated into another uh, academic uh, uh, department because there was the idea to, to amalgamate it or to unify it with the university in Stuttgart. Stuttgart is just uh, 80 kilometers away but that would be uh, sort of they didn't like the idea of giving up their independence and the independence was really one of the key elements of the school. So eventually in 68 the school was closed but that resulted in sort of bringing the ideas into the world. There are two schools in, in Brazil based on the ideas of all in one in, in, in India and it would also be interesting and maybe Mr. Wagner will tell about this, uh, what you would find in the curriculum here in Australia. Okay, now I have talked a long time. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you. Thank you. And before I wrap up, we have a director's request. <laughs> Yes, certainly, uh, because I always was sort of approaching the light. Thank you very much. Um, remember the node in the vitrine? And there you, have, you see the application of the node. So we have street lights, and you can design them in many different ways. And the traditional street lights in Germany, you had the mast, you had the lamp, and you had maybe arms to, in, if you wanted to have more lamps. But they were, you could see every single part as a single part. And now they are trying to do a new unify, uh, unified whole. Um, and that's where this node comes in. And here you see a solution with four arms, but the whole looks really like a flower, sort of a stem of a flower. So it really looks organic. And on this side you see different solutions with just two arms uh, or three uh, lamps. Uh, and again, and of course, a different kind of node. And I was talking about semiotics too. And this is sort of a super sign for land becoming. Because if you see this outside, you will immediately recognize this. This, this must be a lamp and nothing else. And uh, so this is also what they try to do with uh, different designs. But this is one of the best examples where, where we can show how semiotics is applied uh, to product design in this case. Have you? That's sufficient, I hope. <laughs> Are there any questions? Yeah. Anyone like to ask a question? Uh, I just wonder about the Amsa Airlines logo. It yeah. looks very familiar to the very <coughs> own symbol from Vietnam on the bronze front. Uh -huh. Do you think there are any relationship? Oh, that's an hard. I don't know that actually, because the, yeah. the, the Lufthansa was founded in 1926 and they already had the crane as, a, as an emblem, uh, but that would be interesting to know, but I, 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 can't, I can't tell you about that. Thank you. For can I show a picture? Excuse me? Uh, can I show a picture? Because it looks very familiar. Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah sure. It's about four, six thousand years ago on the bronze front. Uh -huh. I, I see it's very close, so I think it's quite surprising. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's, that's, that's the picture on the branch room. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, show it to the others. That's really very interesting. It's a very stylized uh, thought. That's the branch room, and they call this is very extrovert. But it surprised me, the Lufthansa logo looks very familiar to this. Yeah, I mean, it could be that one of the designers in the 20s had, a, had an idea, saw that in a museum. That's surprising. Yeah. But thank you. That's very interesting. Um, one more question. Oh, one more. One more, and then I think we'll, um, Martin will be around to answer a few more questions afterwards. Do you think if the school was incorporated into a larger educational institution, a university, would we remember it as well? Yeah, that's a very good question too. But there, are, let me rather answer it in that way. What former people from the school said, and there is one film. Of one professor, actually Horst Ritter was that, who said it was an experiment with a, oh God, now I don't know the word in English, a zeitzünder, with a sort of, it was a bomb which 
had to explode because the combination of people, the combination of subjects, and just the the whole concept of constantly re-rising everything finally had to explode. So it couldn't work as a as a, as a school, as a normal school. And my personal theory is that they sort of started very. It was a bunch of young geniuses or young people wanted to, wanting to do something after the Second World War, and they uh, succeeded in, in introducing the school and making, making it happen, but they sort of missed the, the, the right moment in, to put it sort of into a normal order or to, into a traditional school, because uh, students also started to complain because they were coming to Ulm to study certain subjects and they were never... Uh, given these lectures because people didn't, they didn't hire the right people or they, they couldn't find them or couldn't finance them. So also people, the students didn't get what they wanted or what they paid for. And so I think they just missed the, or they didn't want to have a sort of traditional academic institution. And, and I think they would, well, you can discuss, I mean, still we have these products for which they might be remembered. Thank you very much. Please uh, join me in thanking Martin for this great talk.